Hello, today we're talking with Linda Steg, who has a beautiful paper in the Journal of Environmental Psychology titled Encouraging Pro-Environmental Behavior, an Integrative Review and Research Agenda. This paper really nicely talks about environmental psychology and how do you promote pro-environmental behavior. So we're going to jump into where she's introducing herself. Enjoy. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I'm a professor of environmental psychology, so we study interaction between people in their environment. So on the one hand, we look at how environmental conditions might affect behavior, well-being, uh, but also perceptions of people. And on the other hand, what motivates people to protect the environment, to act more sustainably? And also what type of strategies might be effective and acceptable to people to change their behavior? Uh, in a more, more pro-environmental direction. Uh, and not only what is acceptable and effective, but also why. So which factors make that a certain policy is more effective or more acceptable than another one. Oh, interesting. And did you, did you start off in this field? Or, you know, I mean, did you, or did you, how did you yeah. come to it? Uh, when I was a student, I took uh, a class in environmental psychology. It happened to be the first year that the class was being taught at our university. I didn't know that. Yeah. And I was really inspired and I thought, this is something I wanted to do. So I managed, uh, I went to the lecturer, but, uh, later my uh, PhD supervisor, and said, this is something I would like to do. Do you have an internship uh, or a topic for a master thesis for me to work on? And that was possible. And as soon as I finalized it, uh, there was a, a PhD position in his group, and I applied, and I got the job, and then I stayed in the field forever. <laughs> but but I'm, I'm basically trained as a behavioral change scientist, so very broadly. And, yeah, environmental issues caught my attention and made me really enthusiastic uh, to study it further. And... Yeah, when I started, I was one of the few people studying it. But now, luckily, the the field is blossoming, and more and more people uh, are yeah studying this as well. And it also became more important, of course. Yeah. No, no, it is like it's. We've had some students interested from this end, and it's even in the past few years. Like you know, when I like however many years ago, you didn't. It was hard to find like positions and people to work with. But it seems like it's really yeah. expanding. Yeah, yeah, it's really expanding all over the world. So also in the U.S., so one of my colleagues, he's in California, he always attended more conferences in Europe because there was hardly any uh, other scholars in the U.S. doing similar things. And now lately I, I came across so many job advertisements asking people in, in the field of environmental psychology specifically or behavior change related to sustainability more generally. So, yeah, it's really a big interest in the topic. And I saw, I, I saw like a lot of your work, you've done like energy work. Did you, is that like the first behaviors you thought about changing energy use or was it something else? In my PhD and yeah. my master thesis as well, I started studying car use because okay. in those days that was a, a major issue in the Netherlands, car traffic uh, problems, not only because of traffic jams, but also environmental problems. And the interesting thing about our group is that, um, we have always been uh, collaborating with environmental scientists. So we were also always studying also behaviors uh, with an eye on the environmental impact. So not basically trying to test our theories, but also 
trying to have a major impact on environmental problem uh, reduction by studying behaviors that would matter more. So they, they tapped, uh, targeted our attention already more on energy use, car use, for example. And uh, yeah, I did many different things. So basically, I'm more interested in general factors, general strategies that might motivate people across the board. But now, at this moment, a lot of our studies focus indeed on energy use, the energy transition. Uh, and that's also because this is a major issue now uh, in, in the Netherlands, but in Europe and worldwide, because this is one of the most challenging problems we are facing as it contributes to climate change. Yeah, no, no, I agree. But I'm going I'm to go back to something you said, and it's, I think it's in the paper. And I guess, when, so when you're looking at these effects... It seems like, like you're talking about actually measuring the effects. I guess with car use, it'd be yeah. like decreasing miles, increasing yeah. like miles, like how efficient they are, versus yeah. like, I guess thinking about how people like I forget how you word it, but how people feel about it or how people. Yeah. So I don't know. Could you comment on that a little bit more? It seems like do you do both ends of it, or what do you think's more important, or I guess both sides are important. Yeah, we also we do both. Yeah. But I think uh, if you also, so we like to do research that is scientifically sound, but also has an impact on society, can help solve societal problems. So then it's not sufficient to only understand why people care about climate change or whether they believe in climate change, but also see what motivates them to act accordingly. And then you also soon come across that people are not only motivated by environmental reasons, but there are many other types of reasons that might motivate them to take action. Plus, you come across the fact that sometimes changes are hardly feasible. And that means that it's not sufficient to change people's motivations or perceptions. But that you also have to consider contextual changes. And in that respect, you have to collaborate uh, with other scholars who are, have a, a major expertise on these topics as well. So that's what we do a lot. We work a lot of in, in interdisciplinary teams. No, no. I, 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 oh, an aside, I have, I have many more questions. I love when you have interdisciplinary teams. Like when you have someone who thinks, like, you know, knows the same goal but thinks differently. Yeah, yeah. It's challenging. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Yeah, because you really have to understand each other's language. You have to be willing to challenge your basic assumptions. Yeah. But I learned a lot from it as well, basically also because they challenge your, your, your basic truths almost. And that makes you reflect more critically on your approaches. No, I agree. And also it makes you look at, like, right, it's your basic truths, right? Because they're making you look at it in a different, like through a different yes. lens. Or yes. from like a different angle, right? Would be the yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Right, when they do it well. So what? What? So when you say contextual changes, can you like describe what you mean, or give an example, or? Well, for example, and and I live in the Netherlands, and we have a very uh, uh, well organized bicycle structure infrastructure. So here's pretty easy to cycle around. But when I come in uh, U.S. cities they are mostly not so much tuned into uh, to uh, promote car, uh, car use, yes, not bicycle use. So that means that in some cases it might be really challenging or even unsafe 
to cycle. And then something needs to be changed in the context as well, as for example, to, uh, to build a better uh, bicycle infrastructure or to ban cars from certain areas so that it's more nice and safe to cycle. Another example would be if you want to recycle your waste, you should have facilities at your disposal that that you are able to dispose of it in a proper way. Yeah. No, I. I, I do. And the the bike question is so interesting because you know after spending you know I was five months in the <laughs> Netherlands, it's a it's it's amazing how quickly your mind changes. You know, like within a week of being in the Netherlands. I biked everywhere. Like you would, yeah. like you don't even walk. If it's over a hundred feet, like you don't walk anymore. <laughs> no. <laughs> right. Like it's, it's like you become like Dutch like that very quickly. Yeah. Right. And it, it was truly amazing. I think we were in Delft and I used a car maybe twice. Right. Like, yeah. right. Like we rented a car for, but everything else I biked or trained. And it's like, it was amazing how quickly you, like I said, how quickly I became Dutch like that. Oh, I can just bike yeah. there. And you just, you bike. Yeah. But then now yeah. I'm, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's also quite convenient and yeah. fast to cycle around, right? Because many times, I live in a city center as well, and it's faster for me to cycle somewhere than to take a, a car. Yep, exactly. But then it's interesting, then I come back to New York. New York's really, I live right in the city, and they're they're really pushing bicycling right we're getting better bike lanes yeah yeah i noticed yeah yeah and it's getting nicer and i bike a lot more but it's like it's interesting we haven't made that flip to like the dutch level no but yeah. i i do see change happen and yeah. i was amazed that many people are cycling already in new york now yeah. it was very different uh, from the previous time i was there yeah. yeah and it's quickly it's it's amazing how right you once you put in these Right. Once they put in the safer bike lanes, yeah, and separate the cars, how quickly people like adapt to that, right? Yeah. It's that, right? I guess I guess that's sort of like what it's what I'm sort of like, right? Like when you when you set it up correctly, like how quickly people will switch, right? Or yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah. So that that is a nice demonstration that by facilitating the behavior or enabling the the behavior, and then people are well willing to change it in a more sustainable way. So sometimes. There are circumstances that block them for doing the the more pro environmental thing. Yes. So then um, yeah, and 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 I yes no, and I see that. Right, and it's also easier. But I was going to come back to like then you also talked about what motivates people. Yeah. And and I always find that interesting because like, if people do the right thing, does it matter if they're doing it for the wrong reason? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good thing. It, um, in the end, it doesn't matter that much for that particular behavior what reason people might have to engage in it. But it might have implications for the likelihood that they also engage in other behaviors. So that's what in psychology is called spillover. Oh, okay. And there's a research that has shown if people engage in the initial behavior for pro-environmental reasons, they're more likely to engage in other environmental actions as well and the reason is that when i do something uh, to protect the environment i'm more likely to uh, uh, see myself as a person who like who yeah who acts pro-environmentally and that motivates me to act accordingly in other situations as well because we're motivated to be consistent and to act in line with how we see ourselves so in that respect it might be important for what reason you uh, engage in 
a specific pro-environmental behavior. Oh, okay, interesting. Interesting. So does that mean it's like? So does that mean like when you're, in, like you're trying to make these changes? I guess that means that makes the informational side very. Yeah. Like so, you have like the contextual side, then you also talk about the informational side. Yeah. Yeah, and we also know from our research, because when I ask in, in, in public talks for whatever audience, uh, when I ask the public, like, what motivates people more? Is it money or the environment? The, the initial response is mostly, uh, by most people, money. Why? Yeah, because it's tangible and you can immediately use it. But what uh, uh, various studies show that in some cases, People are more motivated to uh, act pro-environmentally when they care about the environment and rather than uh, while they care about their money. And also emphasizing environmental benefits might be more effective than emphasizing financial benefits. So, and then there might, uh, might be multiple reasons for this. So on the one hand, in many cases, if you do something to protect the environment, the financial benefits are, yeah, small. Right, yes, so yes. and people become to think, why would I do this? It's not worth the effort. And doing something good for the environment is often perceived to be more worth the effort because doing good feels good. So it might literally elicit a warm glow. We feel good if we give money to a pot handler, give money to charity, but also if we engage in pro-environmental actions. Oh, okay. Okay, so is that so you so you feel like that that feeling good part is critical for like the long-term, like sort of like the long-term implementation? Yeah, because the research has also shown that if people anticipate feeling good to do, uh, when, to, uh, when they engage in a particular behavior, they're more likely to engage in that behavior. So anticipated feelings are a strong motivator for action as well. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. I didn't, I, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. But I was going to come back. Okay, I'm going to jump around a little bit. And then... Yeah trying to get people to do things like this idea like since we're sort of making like guilting people versus encouraging people or yeah right i think that sort of flows into the same area right how do um like the, the right those that sort of fight like how do you like do you sort of shame people into doing things or is it always better to be encouraging yeah, that, uh, there are different uh, perspectives on it, and there's also different uh, findings supporting each <laughs> position. It also has to do with whether you should use the carrot or the stick, right? Yep, yep exactly. And it's uh, there's some yeah basic Tversky and Kahneman reasoning that losses loom larger than gains, so people are more motivated by, by anticipated losses than gains. But only punishing people and not telling them what would be the right thing to do is also has also been shown that it might not be sufficient. People should also know what then the proper behavior is. And that's more clear when you reward them. Yeah. Uh, so both might be relevant uh, in different uh, contexts. But sometimes just rewarding people can also not be sufficient but because it might imply that the uh, the environmentally harmful behavior still is very attractive i see so so you have to you have to make it clear that 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 behavior is still bad yeah yes oh interesting but then okay back to this then what about like um gamify like you know everyone's trying to turn everything into a game these days yeah. does that fall in the same category as or is that totally yeah. like a different type of psychology you know psych yeah 
Well, I think that it's basically the same. Uh, it's related to your question, uh, what you ask about, uh, does it matter for what motive people engage yeah. in behavior? Because with gaming, the motive can be, oh, I do something fun. And there might be a risk on by only motivating people to do fun things because then they do it as long as it's funny. But if it's not pleasurable anymore, they might cease doing it. So it might not be a durable reason to engage in pro-environmental action. But if you, I, there's very little research about this. So now I'm theorizing. Okay. But I think if you would link it to a pro-environmental goal, so that the game is not only a game, but also something has something to do with benefiting the environment, then it might have beneficial effects. Okay. So so it might so then that way you. You're sort of uh, see if I can see if I can try to understand what you've been teaching me today. <laughs> so you're saying that way, if you um, if you have a game where you're sort of providing the information and the knowledge, yeah. That way, then, like when they're done, like they, right, they'll have right, you'll have learned something. So hopefully, then, like that motivates you to to maintain that change. Yeah, and also when you introduce the game not only as pure and nice game, but yeah. also something that helps you to become a more pro-environmental person. Yeah. We, we're testing this reasoning now, uh, with, with, but not in the gaming domain, but uh, with regard to financial incentives. Okay. Because uh, research has shown that financial incentives might be risky because people do it for the money. Yep. But uh, their intrinsic motivation might be crowded out, so they no longer do it for the environment, and that might inhibit long-term behavior changes. And we're now seeing whether we can uh, implement incentives in such a way that people not only do it for the money, but also realize that it is something that would benefit the environment, so that it can be still an intrinsic motivation and answer as well. Oh, interesting. So it's sort of like trying to... So you sort of, so somewhere you have to like... At some point, I guess you have to, if you start for the money, how do you sort of segue or move into that next yes. permanent stage, right? How do you get yeah. it? How do you get that? How do you get that behavior to sort of stick long term? Yeah. 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 Right. And, and, and I feel like sometimes, right, there's, right, I, coming back to your contextual idea, I think, right, when you change that, it does make a difference. Like the other thing, like, like the one thing that's been going on here and I noticed from the trip to like when you go to Europe, no one has plastic bags anymore. They've been banned. Mm -hmm. You have to buy a bag. Yeah. Right? And they're not even that expensive. I forget. So it's like, but I can remember the first time I went to a grocery store. I'm like, what's going on? And I, <laughs> I shove them in all my pockets. I'm like, I'm not going to buy a bag. I'm not going <laughs> to, right. This is not going to be me. I am too smart. I'll remember a bag. And about yeah. three times to the store, I have a bag in my pocket every time. Yeah. Right, but then it's amazing that you come back to the U.S. and they're trying to pass these bag laws to ban them, and they're having a lot of trouble doing it because you know they make different excuses, right? Yeah. And so it's sort of one of those. I don't know where that fits in because that's not quite contextual because it's a, it's a financial hardship they're placing on you, right? But yeah. And, and why do you think, what, why is it blocked all the time? Is it about public resistance or political resistance mostly? It's both. And they, they, I've seen some, even in New York, they blocked it saying like lower income, it's going to impact lower income people because of affording bags or something else. Yeah. So it, and a few places have passed it, but it's been very, it's been interesting that they keep on seeing it blocked 
for political resistance in different areas. Yeah. Right. You think that would be like an easy one to yeah. pass. Yeah. And it's also not something that would have major implications for income distribution. Yeah. They're not that expensive. No, but uh, what I noticed often times in my talks is that uh, policymakers tend to underestimate the public support for all kinds of measures. They have the feeling that uh, the public is against many things and doesn't believe that climate change is happening. They're far too negative about what is possible. So you think they're not, so you think a lot of policy people just, you think they're not dreaming big enough yet? No. Yeah, I think they they can be, dream bigger. And there's also some evidence that if you have a brave politician who dares to uh, implement unpopular measures, that uh, the public support might increase and people see that these policies are effective. So that has been shown, for example, in Stockholm. Yeah. They uh, wanted to in, um, uh, implement a congestion charge. So everyone entering the city center had to pay. And they couldn't come up with a political agreement, so they uh, came up with a compromise. They would have the scheme in place for six months, and then in a referendum, people could vote in favor or against. And before the trial period, uh, most the majority was against the scheme. After yeah. the trial period, the support increased, and far more. Uh, in the end, in a referendum, the uh, population voted in favor of the scheme, so it was permanently implemented. And one of the reasons was is that the effects were more positive than uh, people anticipated beforehand. So environmental problems reduced more than they thought, traffic jams reduced more, costs were not as high as they uh, expected. So sometimes it's also a matter of letting people experience new systems so that they see the benefits and then they're perfectly fine with a with a scheme. Oh, interesting! Because it's funny, like the same thing in in New York. They're they're having that political battle over congestion pricing right now. Yeah. And yeah. right, right, and yeah. you look at Stockholm and London. You're like, it should be a no brainer. Yeah. yeah. No, but that in many cities there's still uh, a lot of uh, resistance, but also there. It's not always clear whether it's political resistance or public resistance because we did some studies in the Netherlands as well. And we we actually did some studies around the time that that uh, pricing would be implemented in the Netherlands. It never happens. Okay. Uh, because, uh, uh, but here as well, it appeared that the policymakers underestimated public support. So the levels of support were much higher than what you would expect based on what the what you see in the media and what was also found by a student who did a media analysis that especially one right-wing newspaper was uh had this very strong campaign against implementing pricing policies so they came up with all kinds of messaging that this would be bad and this would be having a spy in your car all kinds of negative aspects were being emphasized Oh, interesting. So, no, so okay. So, where does this fall into your? Because it has like a monetary. I'm trying to yeah. see how this fits into your. Um, yes. Yeah. Like the environmental psych thing. I can see how it works, right? Because it's like people are misjudging the long-term effects. They're misjudging the costs, right? Yeah, yeah, it's also, it's some basic principle in psychology that people are resistant to change because change means uncertainty and we prefer a certain situation. Yeah. And 
yeah, they might be a little bit too negative about what will happen. And uh, yeah, letting people experience a new system might be uh, might be a good thing. And similar studies have been done in the U.S. as well. Where also some, or was it in Canada? I can't remember. Elko Weber, who uh, happened to be at your university, I think, did some studies on or reported some stuff about this as well. That's if you just a uh, brave policymakers dares to implement a particular scheme, then in the end, people are fine with it. That's interesting, right? Because I guess this comes back to my trip to Europe a little bit. Like, like within two trips to the supermarket, I'm using the bag. Yeah. Right, and yeah, like, because, yeah. yeah, yeah, you get used to it, and you you recognize that it's not that difficult, and it's yeah. not that much of a hassle. Yep, and even like, because even in your paper somewhere, you even say people are willing to sort of take a bit of. Um, I'm going to use the wrong wording. Like I was gonna say, take a bit of a hit. Like you know, in like people are they're or like their quality of life reduction a little bit somewhere. I remember. Yeah, a little bit of inconvenience is not that bad. And with your plastic ba uh, bag example, but yeah. a, a colleague did also a study in Argentina where a, a charge was just being implemented. And she observed uh, whether people would uh, use more their own bags, so not using buying plastic bags. Yeah. Uh, uh, so she observed it out of sight, but also pr asked people about the reasons. And there, the pl plastic bag charge was quite effective as well. While yeah. it was only two cents or something a plastic bag, so even in Argentina, that's not that much. Yeah. And many people indicated they did it for environmental reasons. So it seems that the charge uh, act like a kind of prompt. So instead of automatically accepting a plastic bag because it's in your hand before you know, yeah. people have a moment for reflection and then consider, oh, do I actually want to have a plastic bag? No, I can per I'm perfectly fine without one. So it is disturbs a habit and makes a decision more conscious and then environmental reasons can become influential again. Oh, interesting. So you're saying just that that millisecond of thoughts enough to bring the environment back to the forefront. Yeah, because I noticed it myself as well. Uh, yeah. uh, before, at the, I often go to the uh, to an organic market. No, not the uh, yeah. organic market has less plastic. But you have packaging before you notice. Yes. You put it in your hands and then you think, oh, here I have it again. So yeah. you really have to put in an effort to prevent it. And if they ask you, yeah. Then you think, oh yeah, no, I don't, I don't need it. I don't want yeah. it. Oh, that's interesting. So it's sort of that that moment of re, so that moment of reflection sort of enables you to help, like sort of change your behavior. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's 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 sort of an interesting thought, right? And then it seems like, and you're willing to sort of, even though it's it's maybe an inconvenience, it's such a small inconvenience. It's, yeah. People are willing to take that inconvenience for yeah. the. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, if you if you realize if you start thinking about what you do for the environment, you probably come up with many things that you already do, even though they might be somewhat inconvenient. Many people recycle. Yep. Well, it's easier to put it in a regular bin. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. And right now we're right. I don't. I don't know where the Netherlands is. Right now we're trying to get more composting going in the U.S. Right? Yeah. So you're seeing people sort of take on that inconvenience now because it's not, it's not, there's no, right, I guess the contextual setup's not really there very well for, for, yeah. um, for um, composting and organics, like organic yeah. recycling. So you have to really take it somewhere once a week. So it's, it's interesting. 
I am not a convert yet, so I, I probably shouldn't say that too loudly. But it's interesting as I see like my friends and colleagues who's willing to go how far, you know, yeah. to do the composting. Yeah. So I guess that's yeah. yeah. Then do you see a pattern? I haven't I don't know if I've seen a pattern, but there's more and more people now that like, you know, there's like a like, you know, we have a drop off one day a week. More you see more and more people, you know, go, okay, I'm gonna make sure I drop it off once a week, even though it's not convenient. Yeah. They'll go by yeah. the They'll yeah. go by the market and drop it off. Yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. No, so it's interesting to see how like that's another one. Of these like people are sort of changing these behaviors. Yeah. Right, and it's inconvenient. There's definitely an inconvenience to it because you're. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's not an easy system yet. No, but you also see if you introduce a system, then people start using it. Yeah. Because beforehand they couldn't compost. Yep, yep. No, no. It's amazing. People, yeah. People are even if even now with the inconvenient, people are using it. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Okay. I'm gonna just to wrap up. I have a couple questions. Yeah. Um, just because I I could keep talking to you forever, but I don't want to take your whole day. <laughs> I I think this is this is it's 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 a little bit away from what I do, but it's so I find it fascinating, and has so many relevant points. So, but um, when you first published this paper. Like, I yeah. guess, what gave you the idea for this paper? Then, like, how did the reviews go? Oh, that, that's an interesting question. Uh, we, the idea came uh, from a um, one of the en environmental advisory agencies in the Netherlands. They wanted to have a, uh, an assessment of the state of the art. And then we thought, oh, we can make a review paper out of it. Nice. And it was not easy to get it published. It's, I think, still one my most cited publication now. I have to but, say it's it's one of the most cited public. I looked you up this morning, and usually, like, f like I tell people, you know, if you get ten citations, your paper is doing well. Yeah. If, right. If you get a hundred, you're that's an amazing paper. But but this one's however many thousand. That's it's 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 amazing. Yeah. Yeah, well, and the reviewers were quite critical because they started with, "Yeah, we know this already." Yeah. That was not true. So we, uh, and I think that was the main comment, like, this is nothing new. Well, apparently, uh, the audience didn't agree with them because they, they cited it uh, a lot. <laughs> yes. So it was, it was not the most easy paper to get accepted. Oh, interesting. So then um, I guess that's like, I think that's a good story for the students, right? Like, yes. So you sort of like, so did you have to go back and forth a couple? Do you even, I, I, I yeah. forget, but did you go back and forth or what was sort of the... Yeah, and yeah. we also added with other uh, papers uh, together with one of our lecturers now when she did her PhD. She wanted to study environmental self-identity. Yeah. It was not easy to get the first paper published because people were also saying something like, yeah, we know this already. And yeah. uh, this is similar to many other things that we have been done for ages. And as soon as the first paper was accepted, the others were easily accepted as well and he cited a lot as well so sometimes you have to be uh, yeah especially i think when you do something novel then yeah, there might be some reactance <laughs> so yeah. don't give up if you believe in your idea yeah. and of course polish your paper make it better make the argument better because yeah. our papers definitely became better because of the reviews yeah. but don't yeah. get disappointed too easily yeah. No, no, I, I always talk to students about that. You need, for this whole review process, you need a really thick skin. You need, yes. right, you need to be stubborn. 
Yes, and sometimes your paper is rejected by uh, some journal and then you uh, submit it to a higher ranked uh, journal yep. and it's accepted. So you, it's the last, so, uh, someone told me lately like uh, the review lottery <laughs> of machine. Yeah, you can yeah. be unlucky. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree. Then I guess the last thing, do you have anything, anything for this advice for students or along those lines? Uh, if you believe in your idea, keep on going. And of course, you can always uh, strengthen your argument, improve your reasoning. But yeah, okay. if you believe in it, go for it. <laughs> oh, cool. Well, thank you. Maybe that's a good. Maybe that's a good spot to end. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> a positive one. Yes, 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 yeah. We don't. You don't get that every day, right? <laughs> no, I like positive thinking. It's important. <laughs> I, I agree one hundred percent. We in the class, we always argue sort of that. I, I make the students, or I, um, sort of go for the optimistic, pessimistic side. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Make them argue both sides, right? Right. Yes. yes it's it's important. Yes, it is. But I like the optimistic side also. Me too. Okay. Yes. Well, so thank you so much. It's been it's been a pleasure chatting and learning more about this. Thank you. And, and good luck with your course. <laughs>